Welcome to LSE for this online event, a conversation with Professor Adam Tooze on his new book, Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. My name is Patrick Wallace. I'm one of the professors in the Department of Economic History at LSE and its current head of department. So the department is one of the world's largest and most active groups of uh, economic historians in the world today. And we have a large and distinguished group of financial historians um, as part of the department. And in fact, we're actually uh, launching what we think is the world's first master's program in financial history next year. And this is one of the reasons why we thought it was a really important moment to see what we could do in bringing historical perspectives to thinking about uh, finance and the pandemic and the economy in general. Um, on the 2nd of November, um, you can join us to hear Nobel Prize winner Tom Sargent, uh, Chief Economist of the uh, World Bank, um, Carmen Reihart, and another distinguished economist, uh, Graciela Kaminsky, looking at lessons from financial history for pandemic public finance. But, but today, we're starting with Adam Tooze, whose book is one of the first attempts to shape the history of the current pandemic and speaks to both uh, public finance and the big broad economic and political developments that occurred during the first year or so of the COVID pandemic. Adam is the Shelby Cullum uh, Davis Professor of History at Columbia University. He's written a number of distinguished books on 20th century economic and uh, political history, The Wages Wages of Destruction on the Nazi Economy, uh, The Deluge, which examines how a new international order centered on American power emerged after the First World War. Um, And more recently, his work has turned to a very contemporary history, and it's his book, Crashed, which is a major history of the 2008 financial crisis and its aftermath that really, I think, brought Adam to global attention. Um, His name is in lights in terms of historians of uh, today's world. Um, Now, if you've been listening closely and know Adam's career, you'll notice I haven't mentioned one of his books, Statistics in the German State, 1900 to 1945. Um, It's a history of modern economic knowledge, uh, its construction in Germany, and how this shaped governance in the um, interwar period. I wanted to single it out because it started as a PhD thesis in this department. And it's really the reason it's a particular pleasure to welcome Adam back as an alumnus as well as a distinguished economic historian trying to take on the challenges that we face in the world today. Um, And so it's a real pleasure to have him here to discuss his latest book. Um, Before we get into our conversation, uh, for those of you on Twitter in the audience, the hashtag today is LSE um, post-COVID. And um, this online event is being recorded and will should be available as a podcast. Uh, As usual, there'll be a chance for you to ask questions. So we're going to stop talk um, for about 40 minutes or so, 45 minutes, and then we're going to start to bring in questions. So please post questions. We'll see them on a QA and a and I'll put them to Adam on behalf of you. Um, Please do um, give us your name and um, affiliation. We're obviously particularly keen to have alumni and students at LSE represented here because these events are about our own community as well as our broader global community. Um, so, um, Adam, uh, welcome. It's a real pleasure to have you here for these first of these events. Um, so uh, let me begin by asking what I think is really the obvious question. Uh, why did you call the book Shutdown, right? Um, you know, OED made lockdown the word, one of its words of the year for 2020. So what is it you're trying to get at by uh, choosing shutdown instead of lockdown? Where does that come from? Well, it, it comes from the sense that um, 
that uh, lockdown is a term that, though it acquired very wide currency in the course of the crisis, <laughs> is also sort of in a not unfortunate, but in a way a, a, a product of the crisis, in a way in which it's important to recognise. And the easiest way to do that, in a sense, is to come at it from an angle. I mean, if, if you look on Amazon, um, as we did when we were thinking about the title for the book, you know, things previously called lockdown, it's exploitation, prison exploitation novels. It's sort of gruesome Gothic fiction about the horrors inside America's jail system, which which have previously marketed under that, because that's what the term stood for. Right? It was a form of collective punishment. And I think it's, you know, as that suggests, as it were, the term has the valence that it does because it came out of a sort of rather polemical reading of of what was happening in, in 2020. And there are certain places in the world, and it's important to emphasize this, where lockdown is an entirely appropriate description. South Africa, in the townships there, there was armed force was used to force people into their homes. The Indian lockdown at the end of March, I think, likewise has that kind of feel to it. It's announced from the above. It's a huge shock to, say, the informal labor sector of a huge city like Delhi, who do literally find themselves tyrannized by a police force that is beating them into their homes with big sticks. And if you lived in New York and you were corresponding with mates in Paris, for instance, it was also quite clear that though the you know New York was in many ways much worse affected by the crisis than Paris, here in New York this was essentially a voluntary, it was essentially a form of collective social discipline. Whereas in Paris you actually needed a ticket from the police, and if you didn't have, you'd be fined. We did have a lockdown in New York in 2020, but it was after the Black Lives Matter protests, and there were I lived under curfew for the first time in my life. There were police cars in loud, with loud hailers driving up and down the streets, forcing us all back into our homes after 8pm. So that's what a lockdown feels like. And that isn't what we experienced. I think also here, in a sense, my sensibilities as an economist come into play, because, for, you know, an economist is always going to ask, well, how far as it were, was this really something the state ordered? Or how far is the state's reaction function, in a sense, part of a complex collective response to a crisis, which perhaps starts somewhere completely different. And the IMF, you know, did some really great econometric work using mobility data. And its conclusion for the advanced economies is completely unambiguous, which is that the, the reduction in mobility, and you see this in credit card expenditures in many, especially in the UK, for instance, the reduction in spending happens weeks before the governments finally get around to making the choice. And then a lot of this book, and as it were, one of the more, I hope for the broader public at least, more eye-opening elements of the book. A book like this does various sorts of work. One of them is to put together the big picture, dramatize. Another one is actually to reveal things that people weren't following because they had more important things to do. But if you look at the financial markets in February and March, after all, there you see an absolutely gigantic multi-trillion dollar run to safety on the part of private actors that had macroscopic consequences that then had to be, you know, through the logics of collective action, had to be cushioned by huge government action. Um, so with all of this in mind, shutdown just seemed a better term to hold the question open, to force the question. Ironically, it hasn't run across all markets. So when the German publishers looked at it, they said, oh, no, there's no way. We've got to call it lockdown. So I actually had to reword a chunk in the introduction to not be in contradiction with myself. So it's a tense thing, but I'm glad that it works. In the English speaking world, I think it forces a question. It's like, why? Like, so it worked. I, 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 mean, I was really struck reading it that by that starting point. And it made me think about these questions about, well, OK, how much of this is something that we've complied with? How much is something that we've shaped ourselves? And I think that really comes out. 
And it, it's such an interesting contrast to those images, that, you know, those images you cite. And particularly, I remember, you know, we're looking at this, the footage from Wuhan of those steel barriers on the outside of compounds and that very strong sense that this was a police action. So I think it, it really does force us to ask, as you say, what, what, else, what else went on? But as you say, there's a lot in your book, right? It's not just about kind of the policy. And I think that that's where we get from this. And it's a hugely narrative book, right? So we want to think about um, trying to convey something about what, what really stands out about the epidemic. You've got lots of numbers in there. It's great economic history, right? Um, we love numbers. What do you think is the kind of like number that really for you characterizes the pandemic? What stands out as the kind of thing that shocked you most when you wrote this? I think it's 3.3 billion, which is um, the number of people the ILO said we're working under some sort of restriction. It isn't strictly furlough, but we're under one or other type of social distancing provision. And I remember thinking, well, A, that's huge. And B, I don't actually know how many people are counted in the global workforce. It's not, it's not an entity that is, you know, that we regularly invoke as a as a number, it's not like the American labor market or, you know, non-farm employment payroll or whatever, like which is something that we all focus on or CPI or, you know, um, one of the old monetary measures, M3 or something. Some indicator that we, as it were, all of which are actually quite complicated, but nevertheless, we, they, they have a kind of meaning for us. But and what this pointed to, and I do vividly remember it, was simply, oh my God, this is everyone. Right. The, the really amazing thing about 2020 is the synchronization. Right. So that because, well, you know, of course, we've had big global recessions before. But if you think about 2008, when you break oh. it down, it's basically a North Atlantic recession, it's actually misnamed as global. And if you think about 1929, even there, there are hot spots of higher and greater degrees of intensity. Large parts of the world only suffer it later. This was instantaneous and practically everywhere in the world. Um, and that. That really that that set me back. And, you know, and President Macron called this like an anthropological moment. You know, he's a very highfalutin French president, so that's where we go. Uh, 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 Moreno, Lenin Moreno, who was the then president of Ecuador, said this was the first actual world war. Like unlike your previous world wars, which didn't touch my country, this actually is touching everyone, and it's us against, as it were, this virus. In terms of sheer shock, though, I mean, personally, more up close and personal, being in the US for that, those weeks where the unemployment numbers were surging, Thursday morning, 8.30 a.m., the data release, I'll never forget the experience of watching that first one when it jumped to 4.5 million and then it went over six. And it gives me goosebumps just saying it right now. But as a historian of the 1930s, I never thought I would witness the cataclysmic implosion of a labor market like that. I mean, that means that looking around you, and my, my wife, in fact, affected her business was shut down and we knew dozens of people who became unemployed as a result. I had never been that close to to a, an economic crisis before um, as a, you know, as a secure, Ooh. previously public servant now working for an American university. Like it's not something that touches you in that way. But this was everywhere. I mean, you know, I knew loads of people who were applying for unemployment benefit all of a sudden. Um, and that, yeah, that was not like anything I'd ever experienced before. So those two numbers, the 3.3 billion for the globe, and then this, the 6.5 million number, what was it, second week of April or something, where it isn't even the first New York Times headline has the formula, then it's just the entire front page of the newspaper. 
it was terrible. It was. I really. I remember anxious exchanges of emails with friends I've got who are involved in politics, and just like, what are we going to do? Like the wheels are coming off this bus so fast. So that was really. It was very. It was very intense. And the, but you say it's a narrative book. It is, and that that's kind of what I do. But but I do it also because I'm fascinated by trying to convey narrative is the form in which we you know in the west since the late 18th century perhaps somewhat earlier have developed the habit of telling this kind of story right i actually uh, i think i think the narrative really helps actually i think it's only when you see it as narrative that you can really capture quite the speed and intensity so it, for me narrative is is, is is in no way a dirty word right we've got a lot of work on narrative here as you as you know uh, but that kind of like that moment when that unemployment hits, that kind of stands out in the book, it stands out in your analysis. I mean, do you think kind of one of the things that, that you're taking from this is in some sense, the implication of that for people's faith in labor markets, kind of their sense of security, their sense of optimism going forwards, or do you think that kind of washed away, right? Because that was, a, that was an extraordinary shock, but then the bounce back was also quite extraordinary as well. So, I mean, is there a is there a sense that you feel this this damaged optimism kind of a sense of the future in labor markets in in the developed world where it was affecting people who had been feeling quite secure right mm -hmm. um or do you think that that's kind of something that, that that passed away as as the as the next few months passed by it depends critically what sector you're in and and i think there's a really interesting set of biases here which i also became very sensitive to through my through my wife's experience she she, she has a she has a, a a travel firm and um there remains a massive bias in our commentary on the economy which treats that huge slice multi-trillion dollar slice of the service sector economy as essentially disposable it yeah. comes or goes it's there or not doesn't really matter and it's it's been very interesting experiences up close because if you would ask me no because she doesn't know whether there'll be a tourist season in 2022 and no one does globally and that affects literally tens of millions of people very directly the entire economy of the caribbean the entire economy of east africa large slice of the south african economy entire chains of people that she knows in cambodia thailand vietnam all of their futures hang in the balance and it all depends on the latest variant and whether or not we can get global vaccination organized. And so for them, no, there is no security whatsoever. You can book, you have to plan, you have to, as it were, make cognitive investments in that future. But whether or not it's actually there is, is very unclear. And that's, of course, true in our business as well. I mean, Columbia has gone back to teaching in person. But we don't know whether we're going to really be able to complete a term on those terms. And I have a daughter who's actually in college right now. So I'm experiencing it from both sides. And, and it looks like you're doing this from at home. Um, and like, you know, so there is, I think, a profound uncertainty there, which we shouldn't overlook. Sure, if you are in Wall Street or the city of London or various types of manufacturing jobs, business as usual has pretty much returned. But that's not true for you know, 10, 20% maybe of the global labor force, I think is still in a state of, of real insecurity. And and we have to also think stock flow, balance sheets, like, you know, it, you have to have entered into this crisis in a relatively solid position, not now to be scrambling and dealing with the long-term balance sheet effects of your losses last year, unless you were the recipient and one of these utterly staggering, totally unprecedented welfare programs that even in the United States, you know, effectively replaced income for 
even for dual earner households at the bottom end of the labor market, their incomes probably went up. Poverty actually fell last year in the US. And in the Europe, we had this extraordinary experiment with short time working. So there were ways of cushioning this, but I don't think we should be sort of too sanguine about certainty returning. There's a substantial fraction of the labor market everywhere in the world, which is still on tenterhooks, frankly. Yeah, I, one of the things that I, I found very striking in your in your in your book was the implications that you draw out for inequality because of this. You know, this very heavy burden on the services sector, the gendered impact of this on work, and the development impact. What you just mentioned, the kind of impact on the Caribbean. Um, I mean, do you think that um, this is, in that sense, kind of a pandemic that will kind of increase? inequality durably by making those jobs more more vulnerable harder to kind of sustain or do you think this is something that's going to wash out as 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 we as we work out how to deal with it i think probably on both of the axes of inequality that somebody like branko milanovic you know reminds us of in country and between country inequalities it's it's this is a bad one um it's a bad one within countries because though those welfare measures were unprecedented they are temporary and the um, you know the longer term implications of the shock we've experienced are pretty dire. I think, in the sense that folks that do comfortable jobs from comfortable surroundings that can be done digitally basically sailed through this, and anyone who was in the face to face service sector has really been taught a pretty stark lesson about their disposability. And um, you know that famous line that this crisis basically consisted of middle pe middle class people hunkering down while working class people brought them things. Um, is, is, is harsh, but I think correct. And globally, it's, it's probably going to pan out as more severe than 2008. I mean, substantially more severe, because if you look at the World Bank's projections, both low income and emerging market economies other than China have growth forecasts now, which are substantially below their pre-crisis trends. And if we break this down by continent, I mean, really Latin America as somebody living in North America is should be profoundly concerning. I mean, the failure to contain the epidemic there the impact there on long run growth trajectories and the loss in human capital, um, which the World Bank has you know, figured in you know, $10 trillion plus. You know, and we can argue the toss about human capital, whether we think it's a really useful concept, but it's an effort to stick a tail on the donkey of, look, this hurt young people really badly. They lost education. At a first approximation, we know that's really bad for their labor market chances and for literacy and numeracy. They, that's what they're saying, and they're saying it's epically bad. That's another one of those stunning numbers, right? Between 1.6 and 1.8 billion young people were furloughed from college and education. I mean, it's just never before has this happened, that the entire world has stopped its investment effectively in the human capital of future generations. I mean, that's just an unprecedented hiatus, and those things accumulate, right? If you lose, you, that, and they have produced generational effects, which will show up you know, probably in long term studies 10, 20 years from now. And it will certainly impact people's position in the labor market as they enter, right? There's that critical, those transition points where we know there's quite significant scarring. So, um, and, it, it, and, and just to wrap this up, like what it has profoundly exposed is the difference between formal and informal labor markets around the world, right? So, and you could even say this about this will be a way even more, almost of couching the contrast between Europe and the United States. Europe has a highly formalized labor market with all this sophisticated apparatus, which could be turned into a short time working system. In the US, it's just easy come, easy go. People just get fired and then they scramble back into jobs, maybe or maybe not. And you, you know, you take your chances with Florida's unemployment insurance system and good luck to you. You know, it's it's a system designed to deter, deter applicants. And um, so 
And then at the bottom end of the scale, you have India, the Chinese. I mean, another thing that was exposed is the scale of the Chinese informal labor market, right? It's obviously yeah. a sophisticated society with now a high middle income average. But as Prime Minister Li Keqiang himself said, and this was rapidly then put under wraps, 600 million Chinese live at very modest levels of income, which in most parts of the world, and indeed to the Chinese themselves, appear poor. So they have abolished absolute poverty famously. There are no people in you know little underdeveloped villages anymore. But the, the 600 million, this is a huge slice of, of humanity. And all of those people, their vulnerability has been exposed and their disadvantage uh, compounded and enhanced for sure. Yeah, so I mean, the striking thing about this, I mean, if we compare, and I actually see a question here from one of my colleagues, Joanne Roses, about how, whether or not the pandemic might reduce income inequality like the Black Death. I mean, the striking thing here is that what your book shows is that income inequality grew enormously. And I think the data on that is very compelling. Um, and that's, that's driven by these interventions, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a very different mechanism to those earlier kind of epidemics of plague where we're really worrying about mortality for the impact. No, I mean, this, this is a dark vision. And I've never really quite understood this, like, you know, this happy-go-lucky trade-off. Whoops, look what happened. Wages went up. Uh, and it, you know, it, I know. Granny's dead, but no one minds, right? Yeah, like, exactly. no. You know, because in the early modern period, they had a different attitude to take your pit, childhood, old age, mortality, whatever. I've just taught Jeffrey Parker's monumental uh, book about the 17th century crisis. And, you know, one of his chapters simply is headed, a third of the world died. Um, and of course, that affects labor market balance. Yes, it does. There's no doubt at all. And it will affect property prices as well. And so will therefore probably in a double way affect inequality dynamics. Um, but that is not our world, mercifully. Uh, and this is, you know, the, 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 the point I take from Martin Wolf and Expand, where he had that great editorial. Because, you know, this was part of a huge collective struggle to make sense of what was happening to us and all of our parameters are being thrown out. So I don't mean to be cynical about the medieval, medieval example, but I, I don't think it's helpful to think with that. And Wolf said, look, the thing about this is that we're rich countries, so we afforded ourselves this shutdown. This is what rich countries do because they prioritise life at some moment there is and there's a whole variety of complex and rather incoherent ways in which we do that but that is in some senses clearly the the the, the ultimate outcome the really more surprising thing is that not just rich countries did but everyone did i mean de facto for whatever reason and i think it's very complex and interesting to think about but it became like a badge of almost club membership you know of being a responsible player that for instance india just couldn't but lockdown at some point you know if you were going to be an upstanding g20 member and you were going to be you know a future global power in the 21st century then in some senses you had to be seen not to be saying oh well we can't do it because too many you know poor people in the informal labor market in delhi that isn't going to wash as an argument at that point so yeah no i don't it isn't it isn't that kind of a, a historic mercifully Though, of course, Bill Gates does periodically remind us that of all the various environmental challenges ahead, this is the one that could kill a billion people at a stroke. There yeah. aren't many climate models that take you to that kind of dark corner, whereas you don't need more than two or three mutations on, on the coronavirus to get you to precisely that kind of place. Yeah. And I think that's one of the kind of striking messages I took from the book, is that in many ways, it's the distinct, one of the distinctive features of COVID is the coherence, scale, and universalism of the response, that that, 
that is something you can't see any precedence for. And yeah, at least at first it breaks down. But in that moment, yeah, there is a real coherence again. I mean, like, you know, it's sort of it's enabled. It's interesting. It's kind of like an oligopoly. It's like first mover. It's not like anyone actually discusses it, but there's a sense in which you have to move. And then the moves, crucially in the monetary domain, if we're talking about finance, the actions by the Fed change the ecosystem for everyone else, right? It changes the temperature in the entire system by just providing this huge wash of dollar liquidity. So that's one of the things the book's really very interested in is how, as it were, that it's it's not really an explicit coordination. No one, I mean, really, no one sat down. There wasn't really, as far as we know, no really big meeting of central bankers. But if the Fed leads off, it's like a price leader in an oligopolistic solution. You don't you don't really need any explicit coordination. It's just obvious what your next move should be, or at least you have options you previously didn't have. And in fact, that was one of that's one of the most fascinating bits of the book, isn't it? The discussion. Well, I say this right, having just read it. The discussion of the the kind of the financial interventions, and it's where some of the things really really stand out to me. And one I, I suppose is is how much we are as societies as or as organizations able to learn from previous exper experiences because i think I, so my reading of what you said is that perhaps one of the few bits that was genuinely successful was how the toolkit from 2008 could be deployed in 2020-21 that in some ways kind of lessons had been learned okay 2008's not very long ago right <laughs> you know if you're going to have some institutional memory that that's okay we should be able to cope with that right so i mean is this in that sense kind of like both a positive message about learning in financial management at a kind of global level or do you think this is kind of in some ways because we aren't we weren't yet out of, aren't yet out of the end of 2008, the kind of normalization process that that meant that it was obvious what to do. Um, so you see what I mean? I kind of, are, are these bankers who've learned or are they bankers who are still in a crisis? And so. Well, both in a sense, there. right? The thing that we learn is that don't rush this normalization business because because uh, I mean, that's the lesson of 2019, right? Is that both the Eurozone and the US were rather further away from normalization than anyone presupposed. Um, and in fact, both, you know, the, the Euro, the ECB is, has begun the modest level of QE and the Treasury is doing something in the wake of the September 2019 repo incident that is not quite QE, but is nevertheless clearly shepherding the Treasury market. Um, and under massive pressure from Donald Trump as well, who was demanding that the Fed be more proactive. I, I like your distinction. I think it's perhaps over subtle um, in the sense <laughs> that- <laughs> Very academic, right? Yeah. Both true, you know, we, we were definitely still in that world. Um, we could, normalization, you know, was a sort of really a mirage, sort of, you know, on the ever more receding horizon. I think one of the interesting questions going forward from here is whether it will return as a mirage or whether we'll just simply have to navigate without it. But I also think is as as reluctant as we may be to admit that, you know, history matters and that people learn from it. I think this really is an instance of that. Um, genuinely, I mean, I may say that because I feel so interwoven with that process. Crashed was written out of that conversation about what lessons to learn. And I know it was reassimilated into that flow, which is in part why I ended up writing Shutdown, because it had become one of the sort of touchstone ways of understanding how this works. And so it was like, Adam, so what the hell's going on? Hang on, like, we need another chapter, like, what's happening? And, and so I do feel very invested in this. But if you just look at the personnel, 
yeah, I mean, it's just a direct continuity. The folks at the Fed who are doing the massive bond purchases are are veterans of 0809, and they just do it even larger. I mean, they do it epically larger, which gives you an idea. And of course, they are constantly shifting because they're realizing this isn't, as it were, private repo. This isn't mortgage-backed securities. Heaven knows this is the treasury market. This is even bigger. This is far more important. It's also, in a sense, easier to do because it's their back garden. I mean, this is literally their world that they are manipulating. Where the lesson learning, I think, is even more direct and even more consequential, really, is in Europe. I mean, so and 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 it's not by everyone by any means, as we're seeing in the German election right now. Not everyone has, you know, learned lessons from the eurozone crisis, but certain parties have, and certain key actors did, and the folks around Olaf Scholz in the German finance ministry clearly did. Um, and there's no doubt about it. I mean, they'll tell you in so many words that that's what they think they're doing, and. Um, and they have invited, in fact, a kind of entire ecosystem of intellectuals, academics, economists into a conversation with the German finance ministry precisely with a view to not just learn, but to be seen to be learning uh, lessons from that moment. And I think in the crucial negotiations between the French finance ministry and the German finance ministry in May and early June, which was a little opaque still, I don't think we really fully understand what went on there. That was going back and forth and um, not repeating 2011 2012 um, was really uppermost. That whether that really means you know what to do is a different thing. But but you know, not making the same mistake twice was was clearly was quite quite crucial to them. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's really interesting because I mean, one of the I, I was re looking around at kind of different ways in which people have been receiving shutdown, and one of the one of the questions is that obviously in the book you're very careful about kind of what you're what you're taking from it right this is is this a resurgent keynesianism but there was a there's a there's a question mark i think in your introduction around whether or not this is the end of neoliberalism right as a as a consensus and what then's going to come after and i think what you just said is that we just don't know right what's coming after but i mean do you think in that sense this this does mark a kind of final end point to a kind of neoliberal consensus around these things, or is that too strong, too strong a thing to pin to? Pin no, to it's, such a, it's such a complex question, right? Because mm. a lot of people try and avoid talking about this altogether because they think there's no good definition. Whereas I think the problem is more that there's probably four or five different good definitions. And I, I, if you'll permit me, I'll just like the rapid yeah. possible try and as it were permute those, but. But I think as a sort of coherent ideology, I think you'd have to say um, exhausted, probably. In fact, you wouldn't find many people really advocating it as a set of rules. The, the problem is, however, that as a, so, as a sort of second definition of neoliberalism as a practice, um, it was always ambiguous, right? So you'd actually have a hard time pin, pinpointing when it ever was implemented in pure form because it was always, you know, Andrew Gamble all the way back in the 80s in diagnosing Thatcherism talked about strong market, strong state, right? The duality of both. David Harvey talked about, you know, neoliberalism as an ordering politics, sort of the German version, ordo-liberalism, and then neoliberalism as a, as a campaigning offensive, the neoliberalism of the bulldozer, essentially, breaking the NUM, overthrowing IND in Chile. These are not, this is, this is, constitution making it's not the constitution and, and if necessary by by violence and and we've seen that consistently for me i started thinking about this really hard when i was trying to decipher you know 2008 the eurozone crisis because you've got people like wolfgang schäuble on the one hand who are sort of i would think of as pure thoroughbred kind of freiburg school 
lawyers, basically, trying to think about constitutions for the West and for Europe. And then you've got somebody like Tim Geithner, on the other hand, who, you know, in every respect is an exponent of neoliberalism in the American sense, who thinks of himself as somewhere between a soldier and a firefighter, right? The sort of defining trauma. He has this thing where he talks about this film about the people who defuse bombs in Iraq. And being, a, you know, being an American, his imaginary is full of 9-11 and the guys who run into the buildings rather than out of them. It's that sort of heroic crisis fighting kind of mentality. And then you ask yourself in a sort of third move, what's it all for? And then the, think the picture becomes really comprehensively kind of dark because if, so, if neoliberalism wasn't just ideology and practice, it was actually a sort of social project. It was about reordering class relations, shifting the balance of power. Then after all, whatever comes now is on the ground, on the terrain of that massive field of inequality that we were just talking about, where if folks do get benefits, they're receiving them from the top down, not as a result, for instance, of their collective bargaining power. And you could then say that this huge apparatus of interventionism was mobilized, as I say in the book, for totally conservative purposes. It literally is a kind of Bismarckianism for everything to stay the same. Everything must change. Um, and then to sort of add the further twist on this, like another, I think, very compelling way of reading neoliberalism is to say it's a geopolitics. Fundamentally, it was always about American power. Think about shock therapy in Eastern Europe, the unwinding of the Soviet Union and so on. And there you could say, well, yes, here really is a structural change. If anything, structural has shifted. It's the balance of global power in the world economy. It's the rise of China. And sure, there, America has moved away from liberalism, but it certainly isn't moving away from liberalism towards, I don't know, progressive internationalism or social democracy. It's moving away from liberalism towards, as we saw in 2020, a, a kind of really dark, conservative, xenophobic, anti-socialist, anti-communist, anti-woke culture war policy, which in figures around the uh, Trump administration took on a really gothic hue. Mm. So, that's kind of the message is, yes, sure, neoliberalism in crisis. Yes, as intellectual historians and intellectuals, we can bounce, you know, we can now dance on the grave of our favorite neoliberal theorist. But in terms of what's actually being done here, are we so sure? And, you know, you look at, the, you know, a great critical macro finance person like Danielle Gabor, and she'll show you in excruciating detail how all of these huge interventions are fundamentally just about stabilizing the balance sheets of overgrown, hypertrophically expanded private finance. And you, and this is the thing, right? This is, this is just to finish this point, like viewed from 30,000 feet or with a sort of excessive interest in history, you could say, look, there's fiscal policy on the one hand and monetary policy working hand in glove. The two are sort of meshed. And look, you know, they issue this debt and, you know, to fund fiscal policy. And then what happens to it? Oh, it's gobbled up by the central bank. And so, you know, we have the monetization circuit. We're closing the circuit. This is functional finance pure. And amazing. Like we're back with Abelona and Keynes in the 1940s. But hey, and, and people in the markets actually believe this. Like Financial Times is the Grace poll. And the market actors are broadly speaking convinced by that story. But if you ask the central bankers, they'll tell you, no, no, absolutely not. No, no, I'm not on my not on my children's life. You know, what I was doing was mandate, 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 price stability, so fighting deflation, and financial stability, so fighting disturbances in the treasury market. If it should so happen that this actually coincided with a fiscal push, which we should so happen to have just this is it's nothing more than an algebraic identity. You know, it's 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 just that's all it is. It's a, it's essentially a historic coincidence. And it's amazing. They will the central bankers now will literally tell you that they want to have nothing to do with acting as cooperative, supportive players of large scale fiscal policy designed to save society from a huge threat. 
and that they absolutely want to affirm that what they did was to prevent to prevent deflation and financial instability. I mean, it's really it's extraordinary topsy turvy, but they really do think they cling to that because if they if they cling to that, they won't have overstep their mandate. I think that kind of sense of moral outrage about the idea that it's 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 good to defend the market, but yes, oh, we need to be really hesitant about helping people. Backstopping, uh, yeah, backstopping the democratic sovereign doing its job that would be a terrible breach of our duty. No, I mean it, it is. It's a remarkable, remarkable aspect of the book. That um, can I ask? I mean. One of the things, I mean, obviously we're in a history department and you've written here something which is really contemporary history. I was really struck when you just said kind of like this, this came out of how you'd been thinking about Crashed and what you were trying to do. So, I mean, what is it for you that you're trying to achieve in this kind of writing that's different, that's distinctive? I mean, to me, it's a very um, ambitious, incredibly ambitious thing to try and organize this material into something coherent. There's that metaphor of, of writing modern history about sipping from a fire hose. I don't know how you did it, right? But what is it that, that is in that some sense is still history here? What's motivating this as a, as a historical project? So this is my kind of like defensive, pre-prepared position here. So, <laughs> don't think you need to be defensive, be, be bold, right? I, really, so I think there are like, it feels a little packaged, but I, I think I'm kind of convinced by it. So I think, you know, there were like three different, at least three different ways of defining what, what, what history involves. Like one of them is simply old stuff. Like we are, we're interested in stuff that's the 30 year rule, that kind of a notion of history, right? And, uh, and really deeper um, than that. Um, and there's a, so a, there's a terrain of topics which are that historians do. And then the other one is methodological. In other words, um, history is something about sources and, and a particular type of engagement with a particular type of raw material that's different from the work that social scientists do on data sets. And I think that, I mean, I practice that um, and I understand the force of that because it definitely is something different about the effect of accessing an unopened archive. Um, so I think those are both legitimate, but they, I think the third one, the one that I think justifies a project like this is actually that history is thinking about, is thinking about history and history in these terms is the frankly rather mysterious process through which a present with a future and a past becomes a past, chained to a new present, which was the future of the previous moment and so on in a frankly bewildering, mesmerizing kind of regress. And this is a problem which Western philosophy has struggled with at least since the 18th century, that in somebody like Hegel's philosophy acquires a systemic function, this notion of historicity. And I think if you're in the, in the business of taking history seriously, it should be at the very heart of your concern. And frankly, there is no better way to experience it than to expose yourself to the pressure of trying to drink from this biohose. Try write something that you're going to publish the day after tomorrow on the basis of what you saw yesterday that could be invalidated by what's going to happen when you wake up tomorrow. That, and when you do that, you actually are really, in the way that intellectuals can most, because we, we, we do this in our regular lives, choices to marry people, you know, decisions whether to get vaccinated or not. These are all in some senses, but it doesn't go to what we are in our core. If, if our core activity is interpretation, meaning making and so on, expose what you value most to that pressure and see how it feels. I mean, in fact, I would in fact argue that in the training of all historians, everyone ought to write at least some small piece, not necessarily a book, like I have some small piece of work like this, 
because it's when you do that that you feel this pressure of historicity, this gap between what you thought the future was, what you thought you understood the past to be, and when you discover that that moment becomes the past against the new horizon of the future, I think it's, a, it's an essential kind of uh, an alertness and awareness in source interpretation then um, that everyone should, I mean, I would argue everyone should experience at least once in their professional life. And it, once you do, frankly, it becomes quite addictive and you also, <laughs> but then it's difficult um, to back away from, but, but that will be my, that will be my, my rational. That, that's really interesting. So I think, I mean, we'll, we'll turn to questions in a second, but I think one overarching thing that I think several questions are bringing out really is, is what are the lessons? What are the kind of economic policy lessons? And that follows on neatly from what you're just saying there about almost the point of uh, this being to digest, to, to frame, and then to think forwards, because your, your histories are helping shape policy. I think it's one of their great values, right? So what, is, there, is there something you would pick as a, as a standout policy that you would think will actually survive, will get taken forwards from this? I think it's more, it goes back to this discussion we were having about normalization. I just, I was, I was late to the green room of our discussion here because I got involved in an intense argument that I wasn't expecting with a, a surprisingly conservative Dutch journalist about, about, about the book and her desire, as it were, and impatience with my answers took the form of, but that's not a very structural answer. That's not really going to get us to, to, to stability. I can't see how that's sustainable if we do this. Are you really saying that what we should do is just this and then that? You know, when you, if you're saying like we should just warehouse Italy's sovereign debt because that works, you, is that really what you're saying we should do and be satisfied with? You know, coming from a Dutch centre-left position, I imagine maybe not. <laughs> and um, and and my message to her, my answer was, and this is rather meta, but I think this is the central takeaway: is yes, absolutely, to all of those, improvise, makeshift, whatever works right now, tacit fixes that we don't politicise warehouse things that we can warehouse so we can deal with other problems that are more urgent. Pick your fights. Um, take what the game gives you. It's that entire kind of pragmatic position mm. that I think was confirmed in 2020. And our enemy, I think, is, and it's understandable, but I think we have almost to repress it in ourselves, this desire for, well, where does this end? How does this end up? And you get this from also, I mean, questions from the left often pose a similar sort of question, which is, so, I mean, QE sucks, doesn't it? Because it continuously amplifies inequality. And every time you do this, it makes it worse, which is, I think, undoubtedly right, though the central banks, of course, have defenses. But the prime central bank defenses, imagine a world in which we don't do it. Would you choose that instead? Because we think unemployment would have surged and we think various financial markets would have imploded. And frankly, we don't have good models for describing a world in which the US Treasury market loses its capacity to function. We really, really, I promise you, don't. So like, I can't even describe to you meaningfully what the trade off would be between your preferred option and that, because we, we don't. We, we, it's really not a natural experiment we want to run. And and I think that for me is the is the central and, and, and the implication of this. And this is also the sort of, you know, you get asked things like, well, does authoritarianism do better? And you could say, well, maybe yes. You certainly can't with any confidence say democracies are up to this. <laughs> that, that really would be not a conclusion you could draw. 
But I also don't think that's any reason to despair, because that's, in a sense, to my mind, in the nature of democracy, right? It, it, we don't know. We can't guarantee the German voters at the weekend could do something unspeakably stupid. And, and then we would be stuck, right? And there is no promise that that isn't going to happen, other than that people make arguments, which is why engagement in discourse matters, because you know there's at least one way of moving the ball in the right direction. But I think that, for me, is the central... So avoid normalization. Don't make arguments that run in terms of sustainability. Right now, focus on the fact, you know, the thing we're all talking about is debt, inflation, and so on. <laughs> Interest rates are really low. So really point me to a single example of a country which is actually under fiscal pressure as a result of its debt burden. I mean, really, I'd quite, I'd be interested to know. In the emerging market world, there might be. Brazil might be a case in point in the foreseeable future. And that will be a really serious and difficult problem for them to digest. It isn't the problem for advanced economies. So then let's urgently focus on something else, like, for instance, climate investment, which we need to do at top speed because that's going to come and get us. So I think yeah. that for me is the spirit that I hope... And it's quite difficult. It, it sounds like anything goes, but what I think is really interesting, and I'll wrap with this, but that this isn't just my thought. What's really what I find much more interesting is the fact that the BIS and the IMF in the last couple of years have both been working towards trying to think through how we talk in a coherent way about policy choices in a world like this, right? Because the old sort of parametrically optimized, given financial globalization, therefore we should do X, just won't work anymore. Because mm. financial globalization consists of the Fed doing QE on a massive scale, you know, the ECB even larger in 2015. Brazil can't, as it were, just treat external capital flows as just a given. That doesn't make any sense. So both the BIS and the IMF have embarked on programs. The BIS described it as trying to... Um, they said practice in emerging market financial management had run ahead of theory, which I thought was a very interesting way of putting it. And the IMF under Gita Gopinath, who's the chief economist there, has postulated this thing called an integrated framework for thinking about financial policy. And they literally say, what we're trying to do is map the space between one size fits all and anything goes. And so what they're trying to do is, as it were, formulate a new set of more like a zone of debate, like a range of things that we, we could reasonably discuss from the size of your foreign exchange reserves to the degree to which you use macroprudential regulation as a substitution for capital controls to the speed with which you manage a devaluation of your currency. No one's going to try and peg and, and most people can't live with free floating. So the question is, how do we manage the space in between and how is that related to your choice on your foreign exchange reserves? And that's the space I think we're in right now. And I think it's really, it's really, really fascinating that two agencies like that, that were previously in the business of defining orthodoxy, are really saying what we need to define is a space for argument between admittedly intelligent and competent players, right? It's no longer the all back kind of let us tell you what you must do. There's no point in dealing with the Indonesian Central Bank or the bank, Brazilian Central Bank like that. They're, they're, they are absolutely at the height of their game. These people are, you know, it sounds even condescending to say it, but they trained in the best universities of the world. They have all of the equipment necessary and all of the experience. And these are rich, by historic standards, rich countries with large material possibilities, right? These are no longer low income countries. So that's, I think, the world that we're in. And, and the, the, yeah, that's what I'm trying to describe as much as anything else. Thank you. That's, that's really interesting. I'm going to bring in some questions now from the audience who've been uh, kind of patiently typing things in. Um, and I'd like to start actually with a question from Hattie Simpson, who's actually a GCSE student from London. 
Um, and she asked the question, um, you spoke about increasing inequality. And she asked actually, what positives do you think we'll see in coming years from the pandemic economically? And I think maybe you've just touched on some, but I think it's a really interesting question about positives after this. <laughs> no, great question. And, and thank you so much for being part of this. Good for you. Um, uh, seriously. Um, well, yes, I think we've learned some skill sets, shall we say, like those that infamous term, I don't know, it's probably totally unfashionable nowadays, but like transferable skills, like there are some sort of general capacities, like we can do quantitative easing even in emerging market economies. Um, that's one example. Um, which we couldn't do before. It was actually almost a contradiction in terms. If you were a middle income country, that sort of policy was not for you. So we've crossed certain thresholds with regard to the generalization of the means of crisis management. We know also that if the Fed acts in a certain way, the American Central Bank, that enables everyone else to act. So these are positive things to learn. I think probably the single most important takeaway is the short time working model. I mean, that to me is probably the most dramatic instance of learning because it was a model pioneered in 2008-9 and just to be clear it's a model where it's basically the furlough model so people stop going to work maybe even don't contribute any more productively to the enterprise but aren't fired they don't lose their jobs they maybe take a, some degree of pay cut but more importantly a large part of their pay is taken on by the government so the employment relationship which contains so much extra value beyond what people just do on any given day is preserved intact people don't have the terrifying fear of having lost their job and then having to find a new job the, that whole uncertainty employers get to maintain relationships as well and their investment in workers and it's turned out to be cheap and highly effective in uh, managing shocks like this the germans used it in 0809 and since then it's really gone not just across europe including the uk one of the kind of ironies of this moment is that in the brexit year europe the uk adopted a incredibly european social policy but it's also gone to australia to canada there's been real policy learning, and I think that's one of the things. Beyond that, I mean, I think it's very, you know, there was a lot of talk at the time of people revaluing re care, labour, um, and a kind of cultural shift in that respect. I'm always wary about being confident about that, but one thing you can point to immediately is that the Biden administration's, the third element of its great package, so the first one was a rescue package to just simply tie people over, and the second one was infrastructure. The third one is a families plan, and that's specifically directed at issues of the care economy, of care labor, and recognizing its significance in social policy terms, but also in economic terms. And so you can see learning happening there as well. Mm. I mean, I think it's interesting that, that after epidemics, those groups, doctors, even going back to plague, they have a greater claim, and that that is something you can deploy uh, legitimately. Well, hopes, yeah. well, hopes right? Um, they certainly uh, will make that argument. Um, so let me ask a question from Eric Klopfer, who's on uh, was the MSc Economic History. Um, it, actually, referring to an opinion article that you published in the New York Times about um, the risks generated by this great wash of investment. Um, he says it reminded him of the pre-Great Depression uh, situation when U.S. Uh, capital led to questionable investment throughout Europe. Um, do you think there's a valid concern, he asks, that any increase in interest rates by the Fed um, could cause a similar unraveling and lead to another Great Depression? Yeah, this is one of the big worries. Um, 
and this goes to this, you know, happy-go-lucky makeshift kind of, you know, position that I'm adopting, uh, which is clearly one of the risks, and Austrian economists are good at talking about this, one of the risks of an undiscriminating distribution of credit is that you end up subsidizing funding projects which judged against some harsher criterion efficiency might not happen. You may, of course, also subsidize some which might not happen and turn out to be great, but you, you do end up, as it were, um, floating all the boats as the water rises. And there is a risk, therefore, that as, as credit conditions tighten, that, that there could be some rather serious fallout. Um, this is most prominent precisely in the emerging markets. And this is the, this is the, the, the problem that goes by the name of taper tantrum um, and um, is uh, widely feared across uh, the world right now. And the arguments in the Fed about interest rates there are monitored extraordinarily carefully for that reason that we could see a sudden, a new shock to the funding of South Africa or Brazil, for instance. I don't think this can be denied. I think it's a question again, once again, of what the alternatives are. Would we, because there was this cost, have avoided the expansion that we engaged in? I think that would be a really hard argument to make. Um, does it to a degree lock us in? I think it may. Um, and this is one of those points where, as it were, those who desire a return to some sort of normality and a more, as it were, uh, efficient equilibrium um, uh, in terms of the weeding out of inefficient products may just find themselves chronically disappointed. We, we may indeed be locked into a kind of cycle of credit expansion which maintains uh, those projects. I think what one hopes, of course, is that in due course, you know, they're overrun by, replaced by more efficient projects that come from a different technological a trajectory and and so rather than as it were hanging around forever as zombie enterprises um they 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 are either subsumed or more optimistically you argue that by way of some sort of a dunes law type mechanism the faster you grow the more rapidly productivity does in due course increase and so you have a sort of virtuous cycle out of that initial inefficiency. But I don't think it can be easily denied that that kind of mechanism is at work. Um, mm. And that is, as it were, one of the paths that we have chosen to go down. And it, it, it is at that point then quite difficult to back out of. This is why not being on the gold standard is, is, is kind of crucial. Uh, but it <laughs> has also imposed on us the responsibilities of political choice. Um, yeah. It's good. It's good we're not on the gold standard. I think we're all we're all happy with that one, right? Um, I'm going to bring in another question. It's probably our last because we're running close to the end of time. But it's from Colin Lewis, who you'll, you'll remember from your time in the department, because it actually points to one of the things that you're raising there, which is really what actually will explain the rates of recovery, right? What explains if we're going to have to grow out of this? What do you think might influence the differential rates of recovery among different economies? Um, and how that then links to state capacity, right? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a there's a series of, there's a series of linkages here, um, mm. and in a sense, it begs the question of what we think drives global growth in general. So, it's a it's a highly ambitious small question, Adam. Small question, just to finish off. That we'll, that we'll sort of test. I mean, headline political focus is, of course, on the scale of fiscal action in the short run, right? And one of the simple answers as to why. America is growing faster than Europe and the advanced economies are growing faster than the little low income and middle income countries is that the advanced economies can afford to maintain the fiscal stimulus for longer. 
uh, or can at least make that choice without suffering the sort of penalties that a Brazil might find itself running into rather quickly. Because Brazil did big fiscal effort, rather to people's surprises, in, in 2020, but the question is how long can it be sustained for? And that's not clear. And uh, Mexico, by contrast, for instance, chose not to do a large fiscal push, in part because AMLO, the you know, supposedly left-wing mm. president, is so haunted by Mexico's debt crisis of the 80s and 90s that he didn't want to expose what he thinks of as his revolutionary transformation to the pressure of outside debtors. The consequence is that Mexico's growth is to a considerable extent being driven by the US stimulus from the north, right? So its remittances in, in, to a non-trivial non, non degree, which are driving it, plus the supply chain system of the American auto industry to which Mexico is tightly bolted. So that's one element of this. Another is just the simple, the scale of the damage, right? So the, the impact on um, Latin American economies in particular from this shock is absolutely savage, right? Because the, the pandemic was so severe there. Um, and I think that that's crucial. The, the third element directly related to the pandemic is is the rate of vaccines. We, we, in, early, in answer to that great question earlier on about what thing that we learned from the crisis is we need more molecular biologists. Um, um, but the pace at which countries can, as it were, get to the safety of mass immunity will determine to a very large extent the, their fortune from here on in. And so again, you would expect, say, Chile's fate to diverge very considerably from that of many other uh, uh, middle income countries because they have an unusually well-organized well vaccine program. And then I think the third element has got to be something about structure and the world economy. So, you know, the, the boom, the boom of the middle income and low income countries in such as it was, uh, say, in the period from the late 90s through to 2014 was driven by a particular model of uh, commodity driven global growth uh, centered on China. And as China's growth has shifted gear, that demand for global commodities has not ceased, but it has to a degree mitigated, the politics of those relationships have become vastly more complex and the positioning of emerging markets in that system of, of demand and supply around China has become really difficult to navigate. And I think that is, as it were, the, the structural question, how far does 2020, for instance, mess with the politics of globalization to the point at which the positioning of those kind of countries in particular becomes fragile and exposed? Um, it's a little bit, if I, if, if I may be forgiven the observation, you know, Britain's dilemma post-Brexit in the sense that the Tory government that initiated Brexit, its other plan, grand strategic plan, was of course to win the referendum and end the European issue. And its other grand strategic plan was to position the United Kingdom as the conduit for financial globalization on the part of China. The city of London was going to be the offshore, offshore center. And they were willing to take geopolitical risks in relation to the United States to do that. And of course, both of those gambles backfired. And in a sense, to that extent, Britain is a sort of in microcosm. You know, the question of global Britain could be replicated as in the question of global Brazil, the question of global uh, global Chile. How do they position themselves? And some will find spaces and there are niches and, and, and others will not. And that, too, I think, will significantly shape the trajectories from here. Mm. I mean, I, th I think the sense of the kind of the scale of globalization, but the fragility that that brings in and the need to then rethink relationships after thing is it's one of the most striking messages here but we are 
I'm afraid, at six o'clock. Um, so it's been a great pleasure to have the opportunity to talk with you, Adam. Um, I thank everyone for joining us here today. Um, thanks to the audience for asking a whole range of questions, of which we have had little time to cover more than just a handful. Um, uh, but we're most grateful that you could find time in your schedule to, to join with us. Um, you can find Adam's book freely available in a range of uh, venues and uh, uh, online and virtual repositories. Um, and the details are on the event listing. So um, for now, um, it just remains to say thank you very much, Adam. And um, I hope you enjoy carrying on explaining the uh, present and the future of the world economy like this. Thank you for having me. Okay, goodbye. Yeah.